Good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. We'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of God. In 1859, there was a French tightroper by the name of Charles Blondin. Charles had a friend named Harry, and Harry was his manager, and they had this idea, what if we took a rope and put it across Niagara Falls and then invited anyone who wanted to come watch as I walk across this rope? To their delight, over 10,000 people showed up to watch Blondin cross Niagara Falls. And he was one of those guys who kind of got addicted to the attention, and so he wanted to up the ante. And so he put another article in the newspaper and said, anyone who wants to come and watch me, I'm going to cross the rope, but I'm going to do it in a special way. And so each time he tried to dress up his act, one time he did it with a bag over his head. Uh, One time he did it hanging upside down. He once, they said that he did somersaults and cartwheels on the rope. And then my favorite one is eventually, after people were like, okay, we're, we, we're kind of getting bored of this, we need something new, he took a wheelbarrow and he walked all the way out and in the wheelbarrow was a fire pit. He went out to the middle of the rope and then he cooked an omelet on this little, this little device and then he ate the omelet while on the rope. Finally, Blondin and his good buddy Harry said, we've got to do something that's really gonna wow people. They're kind of getting bored with their act. And so he decided, here's what we're gonna do. Let's carry another human across the rope. Let's raise the stakes a little bit. So he put an article in the newspaper and anyone who was interested in being carried across a rope could show up to sort of a tryout, if you will. And to entice them, he said, you're gonna get paid $1,000, which in 1859 is a lot of money. And so 100 men show up. And they sort of do this screening process. You're you're too big, you're too heavy, you're you're gonna be a little awkward. We need to find someone who's athletic enough to hold on. And they narrowed it down to 20 people. 
And then Blondin, to show them that he could do it, carried a 200-pound bag of sand across the rope and back. And one by one, they asked each of the people there, do you believe that I can do this? And every single one of them said yes. But then he asked a second question. Are you willing to be carried across the rope? And one by one, they all refused and walked away. Friends, there's a difference between intellectual belief, I believe in something, and a belief that will willingly offer up your life for it, to risk being carried on a tightrope. When I was approached about preaching this Sunday, I was told it was a stewardship Sunday and that we start our pledge cards uh, this week. And so I thought of the story of the widow's offering. I knew it was a nice story of giving, but the more I studied the passage, the more I realized there's actually more to it than I thought. You see, in Mark 12, what's been going on for quite a bit at this point is that Jesus has been defending himself in the temples. And there were these two groups of people. We had on one hand the Sadducees, and the Sadducees, um, it's, it's hard to make a modern parallel, but about Basically, you could say they were the, the wealthy, the really well-dressed, the sort of social elite um, who were more like the, the progressive secularists of their time, okay? So they, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in God uh, in that way. Um, and then the other side of the table, you had the Pharisees. And it's not a perfect parallel, but the Pharisees were kind of like the hyper-religious they were the ones who said, if we can be, if we obey well enough, we can put God in our debt. So on one hand, you had the secularists who didn't believe in the supernatural. On the other hand, you had the ones who didn't believe in grace. And Jesus has been on the defense this entire exchange until he gets to this moment where he's had enough and he goes on the offensive. And he actually quotes, quotes Psalm 110. It says this in in verse 35, how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, and this is Psalm 10 here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. How, How then can he be his son? What is Jesus saying here? What's he up to? He starts with the premise that everybody would have believed. The idea that the Hebrew prophets predicted a Messiah who was going to come and put everything right in Hebrew or in in Israel. And so all of them are on the same page. Like, yes, we're there, we're with you. But in Psalm 110, David talks um, about this great figure who God is going to send, who's going to put all the enemies down, all the enemies of justice, all the enemies of God. This is going to be the Messiah. But in the psalm, David says something really interesting, right? This is the psalm of David, by the way. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, and then refers to the messianic figure. In other words, David calls the messianic figure Lord. You see, Jesus in this moment is subverting their expectations. And in this moment, he's saying, look, here's the answer. I'm not going to give you the answer you're looking for. Instead, I am the answer. I am the son of God. 
And if we go ahead to Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, is writing, he says, the, the Jews demand miracles and the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul's doing something very similar here. Um, he's saying something very profound. He's saying that in every culture, we have ways of knowing. It's a fancy word called epistemology. We have ways of knowing what is true. And for the Jews, they were pragmatists, right? Um, the Jews say, show me a miracle. Show me an unmistakable, absolutely unmistakable supernatural act of power. Then I know what you're saying is right and true. But the Greeks, they wanted the absolutely tight, uh, watertight argument, right? They were fans of reason and rhetoric. They wanted to know, they wanted that logical argument that would convince them of what is true. So on one hand, you have the Jews that say, show me a miracle. The Greeks say, give me a watertight argument. And Jesus subverts everybody's expectations all the time. We see it over and over and over again. And he says, I'm not gonna give you, I've done miracles, I can certainly do them, and I can certainly reason well, you've just witnessed that. But what I'm gonna do here is give you not a logical argument, I'm gonna tell you that I am God. A watertight person in Jesus Christ rather than an argument. You know, when you, when you read about Jesus, you can never make him up. He's always, he's always saying things that we can never dream of him saying and doing things that are always surprising. Um, there's a great article I read by Tim Keller where he talks about the skeptic who converted to faith in his church. And the skeptic described Jesus in this way, and I think this kind of captures my point. He writes, I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. Jesus of the Bible is full of surprises, but they are all surprises of perfection. He is tender without being weak, strong without being coarse, lowly without being servile. He was conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Phariseeism, passion without prejudice. The man alone never made a false step. No one has ever been able to propose some word that Jesus ought to have said. And Jesus, in his argument, says, read about me. Contemplate me. Try to explain any other way to say that I'm not just David's son, but I am God's son. Jesus himself is the final argument. And then we have this story of the widow. Okay, and when, you, when you read the story of the widow's offering, often I've sort of read it in a vacuum, not realizing that it actually is sort of the climax of everything that Jesus had been doing in this passage. And so you have this story, and the first thing he does, Jesus, is he speaks to, against people who don't care for the poor. You see, the widows were the poorest of the poor. In a culture that already did not stand for women, that, that men could divorce their wife without reason at any time, um, women were often subjected and, and oppressed in that way. And so when you are widowed, you are often pushed and marginalized. And they would be, as by definition, the poor. And he talks about the religious leaders who make great prayers and, and dress in fancy robes. And he says, notice they devour our widows' houses and they make for show lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished severely. This is really strong talk. Jesus is making a very firm point here. And what he's doing is he's drawing on the Old Testament, um, the prophet's theme we see often that God identifies with the poor. 
Um, All throughout the Old Testament, it says, when you give to the poor, you give to me. When you insult the poor, you insult me, and over and over. I believe what what God is doing is he's saying, I I believe he's saying my heart is so bound up with the needs of the poor, with the widow, with the orphan, that if you move against them, you move against me. We see this echo in Matthew 25. Remember where Jesus says, I was hungry and thirsty, and you didn't give me food or drink. I was a stranger and an immigrant, and you didn't give me a home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes. I was sick, and you didn't heal me. I was in prison, and you didn't visit me. Depart. And all the people look at him and say, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? Lord, when did we see you a prisoner? And the Lord says, I am so identified with the poor that when you rejected them, you rejected me. See, Jesus is not saying um, that, you have, that helping the poor saves your soul. That's, that's not what he's saying here. But rather, if you have no room in your heart for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, then you have no room in your heart for me. And so he's now sitting here. It actually, the text says Jesus watch, is watching as these men are coming in and pouring out their bags of silver, right? They're giving large sums of money. And the widow comes in and puts in two small copper coins. These are the smallest coins in circulation, maybe like a penny today. And when Jesus sees her do, do that, he turns and says this. He says, though her amount, her, the, the amount of her gift was the smallest, her sacrifice was the greatest. She gave out of her poverty. She put in everything she had to live on. Jesus is pointing out that the rich give out of their excess. And this woman shows true faith and trust in God because she gave everything. Food that could have put food in her mouth. She says, God, I trust you. I give up all control. You see, the thing that the Sadducee and the Pharisee have in common is that both of them, in one way or another, want control. The secular person says, I decide what's right or wrong for me. Nobody can tell me the truth. I determine my own truth. Where the hyper-religious person says, oh, I'm gonna obey God's rules so that he'll take me to heaven and bless me. Those are different things. But at the end of the day, they're both trying to control. The religious person is trying to control God by putting him in his debt. I will behave a certain way, therefore you owe me. And the other is trying to control his or her life by saying, I don't want anything to do with God. And yet both of them are afraid of giving up control. But the widow is different. The widow offered everything. She said, I'm letting go. I trust you completely. I had an experience last time I was supposed to preach uh, here. I had to call Pastor Mike and have him step in the pulpit for me because our son was very ill. You may have saw my son, he ran on the aisle uh, in the midst of our our music today. Um, He's doing really well, but at the time he wasn't doing well and we were at the hospital and trying to figure out what was going on with him. He was very, very sick. And I have one memory sort of pierced in my brain, I'll never forget, Um, we were, trying to figure out what was going on causing him to be so sick. And they did a a bunch of CT scans and then they they had to do a lumbar puncture, which is like a a spinal tap. 
And as, as the dad, I'm in this room with a bunch of doctors and I'm trying to hold him on the table along with another doctor to try to keep him still so that they could stick the needle in and get the fluids out. And over and over again, my son is, is screaming in pain because they can't quite get it right. And I remember just hold everything I had in me to hold it together and to hold my son down on that table while they continued to probe until finally they were to get, able to get what they need. And afterwards, we're sitting in the waiting room or the hospital room with my wife and I just involuntarily break down in tears. Um, probably the trauma of that experience, but also it was a moment when we, when we were there praying together of like, man, we, we really have no control over this situation. We've got nothing. All we had in that moment was to say, Lord, we trust you in the midst of this really hard thing with everything because we have no control over what happens next. Friends, sometimes it takes moments like that for us to realize that the control we think we have in our life is merely an illusion. And there have been times and times where I have been humble to the point to where I realize that life is fragile. Things can change in an instant. And the harder we try to hold on to the things we think we can control, whether that's our finances, whether that's our health, whether that's the, the, our, our loved ones, our families, whatever it might be, at the end of the day, we must be reminded that we really don't have control and we need to offer that up. Perhaps you're holding on to something this morning. You're gripping it tightly because you're afraid of what might happen if you surrender to God. You see, the widow, she was actually a pointer to Jesus. She was literally giving her life, losing her life, offering everything she had because she trusted the one who could sustain her. You remember the tightrope walker, Charles Blondin? Well, they're standing there and they're trying to figure out what are they gonna do? Uh, nobody's willing to walk across this tightrope. Um, we gotta do something. And so he turns to his friend, Harry. He says, Harry, it's gotta be you. And uh, Harry's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll try again. He's like, nope, Harry, it's gotta be you. And so reluctantly, Harry got on Blondin's back in front of five, I think it was like, was like 50,000 people. And he walked across the tightrope. Now it was much harder than they anticipated. There was wind gusts, it was, it was very difficult. And there were a few moments where the audience audibly gasped. We can read about it in the newspaper. If you Google uh, Charles Blondin, 1859. And there's a great quote as they're trying to, to sort of stay alive on this tightrope. At one point, they're about to fall, and Charles Blondin looks at Harry and says, Harry, you have to stop. Until I clear this place, you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you sway with me, not against me. Do not attempt to balance yourself, for if you do, we will both go down to our death. But Blondin could have said is if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. I believe Jesus says the same thing to us. You have to rest in me completely. Trust in me completely. 
The things you are holding on and trying to control in your life, surrender them to me completely. This is what it means to be Christian. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I can rest in Jesus because even though I'm flawed, I made right through his life, death, and resurrection. I trust him thoroughly and completely. Now here's the thing, Blondin was human. He could have dropped Harry. He didn't, but he could have. Jesus will not drop you. Rest in him, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and we can put our faith and our hope in you, knowing that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that your life for us, your justification for us is enough, it is sufficient. May we rest in that, not on our own behavior, not on uh, our, our material possessions, not in anything that we hold on to, but may we say, no, Jesus, you are enough. And by our transformed lives, offer that grace and forgiveness to others who desperately need you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And this morning, we revel in your grace. It's for your beautiful name, amen.